Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to continue to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter, the 13th to the 16th verse. It's a short gospel, but it's one that's, that's extremely significant in the Gospel of Matthew, that <clears throat> it has to do, so often um, the gospel is revealing to us who Jesus is, the way of Jesus' life, the things that surround him, the uh, experiences that he has, the environment that he lives in, and so forth, and all of those are critical for our faith life, because we cannot be faithful and we cannot learn to love someone who we do not know. And so the Gospels are intended to help us to come to know the person of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man. And so, but they also reflect upon ourselves. And they also intend to help us to become more complete human beings, wiser human beings and human beings more in tune with the fulfillment of their own purpose in life and their own destiny. There is a tremendous harmony between revelation and human nature. And I think that, <clears throat> that this is something that we oftentimes fail to see. We, we sometimes we think that, uh, you know, to really live a very authentic Christian life, we somehow or other have to sacrifice our humanity to do that. And the, exactly the opposite is true. We have to become more human to do that. Because the more human we become, the more we conform to our original nature. And the more we conform to our original nature, the more we conform to being the image and the likeness of the divine. So that any time that we find a religious situation that does violence, not to our sinfulness, it should, not to our narrowness, not to our inadequacies, but into our real existence as a human person, um, then, then we should stop and take stock and ask ourselves, what is this? What am I following? What is this that I see? Um, am, I, am I more complete inside? Am I a better person? I am a more kinder. Am I a more loving? Am I a more wise person? If so, then follow the road that that leads you on. If not so, then I think it's time that we, we come to that crossroad, that, um, that two roads that diverge, as Robert Frost says, the two roads that diverge. And, uh, and I, I chose the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Um, a small line from a poem, but it's very apropos to the Christian life. And the Christian life... <clears throat> As we see, for instance, the thrust of our own culture, the uh, deterioration of that culture, the degeneracy of that culture, and we say to ourselves, my faith makes me uncomfortable in this culture. Your faith should make you uncomfortable in this culture. But your faith should also lead you on a pathway to deepen your own humanity, that you as a person might be a greater witness to the way, the truth, and the life. So to go to the gospel then, Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, what can make it salty again? It is good for nothing and can only be thrown out to be trampled underfoot by men. That 
line always was rather perplexing. How does salt lose its taste? What Jesus is doing, he's using an image from everyday Palestinian life in the first century. The salt that they used was not highly refined, and it was usually mixed in some way. With uh, it usually not by not by design, but just by lack of refinement, with uh, very very small gravel, almost like sand. And uh, it was easy then, if there was moisture, if there was dampness, if there was a uh, some other situation, that that the salt would kind of drain out of the uh, out of the mixture, and basically what you would have left is basically a handful of sand or a handful of tiny gravel. And so that's how the salt becomes tasteless. It simply disappears from the substance that it's part of. What can make it salty again? He's talking about the salt which gives flavor, the salt which somehow is a preservative. And he's comparing that in a way with our faith life. For it is our faith life which gives flavor to our life, and it is our faith life which preserves us in our humanity. If we lose that, then what good can we do with our life? And he said it's worthy only to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If we squander the gift of our created nature, then who are we and what have we to contribute? And then he goes on and he says this, you are the light of the world. <clears throat> a city built on a hilltop cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp to put it under a tub. They put it on the lampstand where it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine in the sight of men, so that seeing your good works, they may give the praise to your Father in heaven. Again, a simple analogy, um, a simple and light, but we have to take a close look at light. You know, the, the, Lord, the Lord gives us in creation the, his image and his likeness. He gives us in that creation also the ability to seek the restoration of that after we have sinned as a race and after we have sinned as persons. We have a way to come back and to relight the light. And he uses again the example of in a house in the first century Palestinian home, usually one room home, and that the light was often a saucer of oil with a floating wick in it. Um, with, a such, uh, with such limited resources for light, you certainly know if you light a candle and you put it on the floor, it gives nowhere near as much light as if you put it up on something. Um, when we have power outages and we light candles, the candles we tend to put up high because they cast a brighter light into the room so that, uh, so that we can see. And so he uses that example, but what actually is he talking about? When, when he talks about, about this. I think that we have to go now somewhere more profound, somewhere more deeply into the mystery of our relationship with the Lord. Because I think that what can happen, and certainly this happens over and over and over again, um, certainly even the great humanists of the 16th century, for instance, Erasmus of Rotterdam, um, he, he eschewed... Um, theology. In other words, the pondering of the person of God. And he was much more interested in what he called the philosophy of Jesus, a more ethical or moral understanding, kind of similar <clears throat> to that stuff that went on a few years ago with the bracelets, you know, what would Jesus do? 
um, imitation of behavior. There's nothing wrong with the imitation of behavior, but but our relationship with the Lord is something much more profound than that. Our behavior reflects the Lord when we ourselves as persons are united with the Lord. Then the way we live reflects who we are and what the source of our life and what the source of our being is. This idea of the light was a great discussion, for instance, in medieval theology. <clears throat> That taking the cue from the prologue of John, where, where the Word is the light, and uh, the Word is God, and was God, and it was with God, and is God, and so forth, and through him all things were made, and he is the light. From this, there was a great deal of speculation, a great deal of pondering. What is the relationship then? How does the Word exist within us? And their conclusion was, it exists in us in the form of light in a way, the same kind of light that Jesus is talking about in the gospel. And, and there, was, there were accusations, of course, against these people that they were pantheists, that if, you know, if the light contains the Lord, then they are pantheistic and so forth. But actually, they were talking about it in the sense that, that, uh, that we talk about photosynthesis, that the light is necessary for life, but life is not light. And that a plant needs light to live, but the plant is not the sunshine. And so there is a relationship then, an, an, an interior relationship between created reality and the illumination of the word, the illumination of the Christ. And that takes place in the human soul and in the human heart. So that basically, when we talk about the imitation of Christ, we're not talking about simply um, modeling his behavior. We're talking about his interiority within us and how do we allow that to happen and how does he allow that to become, how does he allow himself to become part of us? One is through creation. And uh, if we look in the book of Genesis, it's interesting that God creates everything, but God does not create light. God speaks light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be water, and he, and he made the water, and so forth. But not light, he speaks it, because light and word are the same thing. In that sense, then, we can go back to the creation story. We can go back to the prologue of John, which is a commentary on the creation story. And we can say to ourselves, then, <clears throat> if first came light, and then when God speaks the word, then everything that comes after that has somehow or other a dependency on it, at least. And in the medieval world, they said there is an interior relationship to it, that it illuminates inside of ourselves. Well, that means the word is inside of ourselves, is all. How do we proclaim that word? This becomes now part of the light of the world. How do we proclaim it? Do we go around knocking on doors? Do we stand on street corners with signs? No, you know, you can do that. Um, but... But basically, the most powerful witness, the most powerful witness is our lives, is how we live.
is how we how we deal with other people, how we pray, how we practice our faith, how we stay close to the sacraments. How do we um, remove those things which ins impede the light to be to be illuminated from within ourselves? We make use of the sacrament of confession. And uh, we make use of the sacrament of the Eucharist, and we make use of the whole sacramental system, the sacramental life of the church. That's what we do. And if, as we do so, we begin to remove the obstacles within ourselves, and the light can become more pervasive within our own person. And insofar as we then become a source of illumination, because the Lord is within us, the Word is within us, then that's a way that lets our light shine in the sight of men, so that seeing your good works, they may give praise to your Father in heaven. We might say that so seeing the goodness of your life, they may learn to appreciate and to desire the relationship with God that you have. And it becomes a very effective tool of the new evangelization. I know that there's a whole lot of discussion about the new evangelization, a lot of differences about what it means, but as a fundamental reality, one thing at least that it does mean is that the life of the Christians is such that it creates an openness to others to hear the word and to be influenced by the word and to be influenced <clears throat> by the mission and the preaching and the life of the church itself, which is the vehicle through which we move to come into the heart of the living God. So, that means that that part of the new evangelization is simply the sanctification of each individual person. You know, and I, 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 re, I recall um, many, many years ago, a young man who, who came to see me, he was moving into the city, and... Um, and I, he, was, uh, he was related to a, a friend of mine, and they told him to look me up. And uh, he, he uh, was looking for where should he live in the city. He knew nothing about it and, uh, and all that. So I kind of gave him some advice and direction, and then I introduced him to some younger people within my own parish, you know, that, that would be willing to kind of, you know, help him get adjusted and so forth. Well, he was not a Catholic. Um, and all of the people who helped him were. And I know when he left town a couple of years later, he came to see me. And he said, you know, he said, uh, I am so impressed with then the people that he was introduced to were fun people. They were, you know, they were great. And he said, I have never seen a community of people with, with, who are more joyful and who are kinder to each other than this group of people that have been mentoring me for the last couple of years. And he, he said, I never associated that with the Catholic Church before. He said, but now I do. Um, whatever became of him, I don't know. But certainly the witness of that community had a powerful impact on the possibility of his openness to the Lord. It, the opposite, of course, is also true, and go back to something I've mentioned perhaps too often, which is St. Francis Xavier's letter to Ignatius from Goa when he was there, the Portuguese colony. And he said, he wrote back to Ignatius, and he said, I have to, I have to leave Goa, and I, I have to go somewhere else, because the life of the Christians here is so scandalous that nothing I say to the natives about the faith 
do are they able to even take seriously so that the witness a positive witness is powerful but so is the negative witness and that's the thing that we have to be very cautious of we become liable for the negative witness that we give to the faith in the lives of those people who are searching those people who are seeking those people who are troubled those people who are distant and so forth that it isn't just it isn't just a, a matter of i want to be holy it's a matter of i want to allow the lord to use me as best i can be used for the sake of the salvation of others and 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 i think that you know when we say love our neighbor that's the essence of the love of neighbor the essence of the love of neighbor is to want to share with them the pathway to salvation through the sacramental life of the church that's the quintessential act of loving my neighbor. So <clears throat> we then we then go back to the gospel and we put these pieces together again in a sort of way that we are the flavor of the society in which we live. We are the salt. And when the salt dissipates, all that's left is gravel, is sand. And that the sand simply drifts away, blows away, and there is nothing left. Our society is in deep, deep need of a powerful Christian witness. Certainly, you know, we, we, have, we can have the arguments and we can have the, the uh, debates uh, about um, how, how militant should we become, how aggressive should we become, how, cleric, how political should we become. Um, we go. We go back. Should we be pacifists? And then we go back and look through history, and we say to ourselves, we have to put together something that is consistent with the experience of the church, but also consistent with our each of our particular human natures. There are many people who cannot go and march and hold placards. They just simply can't do it, um, and, and and for all sorts of reasons. I remember a high school classmate of mine um, told me one time at a reunion that uh, when, when she was young and a university student in Boston, there was a riot. Of course, there were riots all the time when we were young. And, um, and so as a student, she was, of course, caught up in it all, and she picked up a brick to throw at someone and, uh, because that's what they were doing. And she said, and all of a sudden, she saw her father, who was deceased, she just saw her father scowling at her and she immediately put the brick back down she knew she was doing wrong because her father reminded her of the wrongness of what she was doing um, I think that those kinds of, of moments happen in many of our lives that we live kind of with abandon and then all of a sudden there's this awareness however it comes from that you know what I'm doing is not right what I'm doing is wrong what I'm doing is not consistent with my own human nature. It's not consistent with the values of the people I have known and loved. It's not consistent with uh, the world in, in, which, uh, in which I live and which the, the way that I should, with the witness that I should give of being a Christian. Um, <clears throat> I think these are the kinds of things that we have to be conscious of, we have to be aware of, we have to be attuned to and sensitive about. We can't just, you know, I think one of the worst things that happens to, to us is that we get caught up in these crazy ideologies 
um, every age has its own kind of ideology, and whether it's you know whether it's radical left or radical right or whatever it is, basically as long as it consumes and absorbs us, it's bonkers for us. It's not something that is useful. It's something that is good. I think we see this. Um, I think we see this in the. Um, in, in the uh, political environment that we live in today, where politics become more important to people than Jesus Christ, where politics becomes actually their primary religion. And so if there's a choice between the moral life of the church and the light and the, and the salt, which is, which is the flavor of the society flowing into it from God's own people, if in fact that that becomes secondary to our political ideology, then our political ideology is a temptation and it becomes actually, in a sense, enters into a sinful milieu. You can't say, well, you know, to be politically active is a sin. That's not true. But to say when it absorbs us and becomes more important to us than the church, than the teaching of the church, than the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, when it, when it sub assumes the role of taking the heart and the soul, assumes the role of making it a religion, then for us personally it is an evil. And it is something that has to be put aside and something that has to be overcome. It doesn't mean, of course, that we can't exercise our right to vote in the way that, that we see fit, but we're never justified in voting against the teaching of the church. We're never justified in voting against um, the revelation of Jesus Christ to the world. We're never um, allowed to vote out of hatred rather than out of a deep and real concern for the well-being of others. For everything that the Christian does has to reflect the great commandment, the love of God and the love of neighbor. We cannot love God if we do not know him. And so our life with scripture, our life with prayer, our life with the sacraments are paramount in our life. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we cannot love our neighbors until we first learn, therefore, to love the God who is within us, the God who has given us salt and light, the God who has formed us, in the very core of our being, and the God who, according to the great mystics, dwells within us. Whether it is dwelling within us in, in, uh, in a metaphysical sense of light, or whether it was dwelling within us in the spirit, however we want to interpret the indwelling of the spirit, the indwelling of the Trinity. Um, but nevertheless, we have to see ourselves as carriers and as bearers of the presence of God in the midst of the world. And to do so, we must be able to flavor the world and we must be a way to illuminate the world, to eliminate the culture in which we live. And I think, you know, that we have this great debate going on about the culture wars. Are, are we warriors? Well, you know, I don't know. I do know that there is a time, and, and I like to think back a long time ago, I, I just saw a painting of it the other day which reminded me of it, of the Battle of Poitiers in 720 AD. You know, the armies of the prophets swept through Arabia, swept through northern Africa, destroying an estimated 20,000 Catholic churches, 
up into Spain and up into France in the course of less of almost just a year. And they were met by the armies of Charles Martel at Poitiers and they were defeated and driven back over the Pyrenees back into Spain. The question is, did Charles have a right to stop the armies of the prophet? Um, had he not done so, Europe would have been Islamic. He did so, and the result of that is, is that Europe experienced century and century and century of a Christian ethos of sorts. It was not perfect. Christendom was not something. There is a, there's a, a book out by a man, by, I think by the name of James Walsh, an old book called The Thirteenth, The Greatest of All Centuries. Well, you look closely at the Thirteenth, and if that's the greatest of all centuries, then God help us and the rest of them. But the fact of the matter is that despite the failures and the shortcomings, of, of Christianity. What is important is that the number, the vast number of peoples that were o had opened to them the pathway of the sacraments, which led them into eternal life. And it seems to me, for instance, that perhaps that war, that battle was in fact justified, although it was violent, um, because it protected the pathways to eternity for millions and millions and millions of people over century upon century upon century. Is it always right, therefore, to wage a war? Of course it isn't. What are we waging it for, you know? Um, are we waging it for material gain, for territorial gain, for the in imposition of radical ideologies on other peoples? What are we doing it for? And it seems to me it has to be in the interests of, the, of people's freedom to be able to respond to the grace of Jesus Christ, to his sacramental church, and to be able to move freely in the passageways of their life into the kingdom of heaven. And so it's, it's, it's ambivalent, and we have to struggle with each incident, and we have to struggle with each situation that humanity faces. But one thing that we should remember, and that is this gospel today, that you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. We are that element, that human element within creation who is supposed to flavor our society with, with the reality <clears throat> of the wonder and the goodness and of Jesus Christ, of the care, the mercy, the justice, the peace of Jesus Christ. To the best of our ability, we are to, that, we are to flavor our society like that. And then on top of that, not only flavoring the society, but letting our own personal witnesses be a backup, as it were. Let our own personal witness be that invitation that draws people to an openness toward Jesus Christ, an openness toward the church. And in that sense, we fulfill this mandate to be the salt and the light of the world. And we fulfill it in a way that benefits all humanity and benefits other, indi other individuals whom we encounter in our life. We can only do this by ourselves entering more deeply into the mystery of Christ, which goes beyond simply imitating behavior, simply an ethical faith, simply a faith of morals. We enter also into the mystical faith of a union with Jesus Christ through coming to know him through the scriptures and through prayer, being open to his entrance into us through the sacraments, and being willing to be conformed to him as he becomes ever more 
a part of our interior life, a part of the world in which we live, a part of our consciousness, our heart, and our hopes. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.